Hi, Mike. Hey, Julian. Hey, I've got a question for you, Mike. Which is the odd one out? Okay. Oh. Yeah. So is it working in Thailand? Uh-huh. Being a competitive swimmer? Uh-huh. Doing a cert AVP? Uh-huh. Or euthanizing a cow in India? I, I think swimming. No, no, no. It's euthanizing a cow in India. What? Yeah. yeah. So look, we'll get Chris Wilson on. He'll explain it. Okay, let's get Chris Wilson in. Great. Hi, I'm Mike Brampton. And my name is Julian Ho. Welcome to Veterinary Ramblings. Good evening, Chris. Chris, hello there. Good Good evening. Hi, Chris. How are you doing? I'm fine. Yourself? Lovely. Have you got a drink? I do, actually. Do you? Oh, is that a gin and tonic? Is that a gin and tonic? A gin and tonic. Ah, good lad. Now, I, I hear that you, at one point, were not necessarily going to become a vet. No, I'm, you, you were actually I, a swimmer. Yeah, so I mean, it's it's interesting you say I wasn't going to become a vet because I, I think when I reflect on it, like I always see my path having led to here. Okay, it's just I kind of got thrown a curveball just when I was applying for university. I was, um, I was competing at before my age. I was competing at a reasonably high level um, mm-hmm. uh, swimming, and um, I'd just been through my Edinburgh interview, um, which, I mean, I, I studied at Glasgow, so I can say bad things about Edinburgh. <laughs> um, the, the classic rivalry between them, but the Edinburgh interview, which I found, I found slightly unwelcoming, to be honest. Okay. Um, yeah, I, maybe that was all on me, but that's how I found it. And um, I'd just been through that, and it was almost a little bit demoralizing. I was obviously, you do all your, your um, work experience and everything when you're a student, work, obviously work so hard at your exams. Um, I'd just been through that and then literally out of the blue I got this great brown envelope um, from University of Bath um, which is one of the, the best uh, universities for swimming um, just out of the blue <laughs> came through the letterbox offering me a place on a course um, mm-hmm. I was just like to go from making people want me in interviews to suddenly being wanted was it, it, it really kind of nearly knocked me off my course. Um, and I mean, part of me would have loved to have done it. I, I loved competing and um, yeah, I mean, if I would have made it to any success, I don't know. Um, I don't know if I would have stuck it out that long and things, it's, um, it's, it's, it's tough, you know? Mm, okay, um, so if- but yeah, and then, I mean, the week later I had the Glasgow interview and obviously that one was really, Um, super nice I wanted to go straight there of course and got my place there so um, yeah it was just it it did nearly knock me off my course but um, I think ultimately even if I had maybe taken that detour hopefully we would have probably still ended up back on this track right so being being brutally diagnostic do you think you'd have made it onto the onto the uh, the British swimming program I, I, I don't know there was a few of my big rivals, because um, I, I was a breaststroke, um, that was my stroke. Um, and uh, Adam Peaty springs to mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he was like a few years lower down from me. Um, no, but what stroke was Duncan Goodhue? Was he a butterfly and front crawl, wasn't he? I think so, yeah. I don't, he, he definitely wasn't a breaststroker. Um, but one of my big rivals was someone called Michael Jameson. Um, mm-hmm. And he won silver at the Olympics, and he went to Bath Uni. 
Um, so yeah, so like, obviously I, I cannot say I would have ended up like that, you know, but, um, mm. and that's like X number of swimmers who went there. Um, and you get those success stories and things, but it does, I don't know. I remember watching him, him getting that medal and, um, mm-hmm. I, I, I had no kind of like regrets or remorse or anything. I was just mm. delighted for him, you know, but, um, yeah, it is funny how you're kind of, your path in life can change. So was was there just that little bit of a that could have been me? Um, yeah, come if on. Anything, I think it was more <laughs> bragging. It was like oh, I used to I used to race against him. I think it was more okay. like I, 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 I used to. Race against him. <laughs> um, so who, who used to win? I, I mean, usually him. To be fair, he he was he was a year older. I'm going to use that as my excuse. Oh, um, yeah, yeah, but I, yeah, it's, it is funny that though. I find so cheated by virtue of his age. Yeah, we hear that so much. And do you still swim, or, or have um, you given it up in a in a fit of peak? I, 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 yeah, I, I don't. I think the thing with me, and a, this is maybe a reflection of my my work ethic. Who knows? But um, the training, I wasn't as fond of as the actual competing, the mm. racing. There was, there was like nothing like it. I, I loved that, you know. And I, I mean, even now, I mean, now that I've kind of got sort of quite a good work-life balance. I am potentially looking at sort of looking into masters clubs and things like that again. So it gives you an opportunity to compete. Um, I think so. Yeah. Uh, hopefully, I hope they'll get back into it soon. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I spent a little while working with the with the British team before London. Oh, really? And the work ethic and the amount of work they were putting in. Um, they'd already been two, three hours in the pool on a day. Mm-hmm. when I would rock up in the evening and they'd be there for another two or three hours. Yeah. And it was just, it was just constant. Yeah. Absolutely. Incredible. Well, do you remember Sarah Cotton, who we had on uh, a few yeah. weeks ago? Um, one of my friends who, who uh, is a, a channel swimmer. Right, yeah. Uh, and she trained for 18 months to do a there and backer. Uh, and she, she would swim for four or five hours every day in the sea. Yeah. yeah. That was, um, I mean, sea swimming is totally different. It's so tough. It's so much more tiring. But um, I mean, yeah, I was when I was studying for my exams uh, before vet schools. Generally, most days I was about four hours in the pool, um, like before school and then after school. It's just, it's intense, you know. Um, I think kind of, I, I think when I sort of went to uni, I was like, oh, this is, this is actually more relaxed. <laughs> Uh, and I don't smell of chlorine anymore. Yeah, well, well yeah. I, I did keep on swimming at uni, so I did smell of chlorine right. for another five years. <laughs> and you hold a pencil again. <laughs> Brilliant stuff. So, all right. So, so you 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 were doing all this training and all this swimming. So, when did you want to become a vet? When did you know that this was going to be your path? Oh, so that's what I think. Like, I was probably when I was a kid. You know, right. um, I remember I had a. I actually wanted to be a zookeeper for a while, actually. Um, okay. But I, I come from a really medical family. So right. um, even when I was really young, I mean, our dinner table conversations weren't weren't pleasant. My dad would come home. My mum was a retired midwife. My sister trained as mm-hmm. a physio. Like, it, was, it was very medical, our conversations. I'd be asking my dad about all sorts of diseases I'd been reading about and stuff like that, you know. And um, yeah, so I mean, from a very young age, I had that kind of medical persuasion and obviously just was convinced I needed to work with animals on some level. Um, right. Hence why veterinary obviously was very, very logical for me. And yeah, so I mean, I can't even remember when I started wanting to be a vet, but 
that's probably how young it was. It was um, it was kind of before I can really properly remember that. So it was everything. It was everything then channeled through that you were going to be a vet and this is what you're going to do. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess so. I mean, uh, I mean, we mentioned imposter syndrome when we were chatting earlier. And I, when I went to uni initially, I, I had that to quite a degree because I, um, I, I wouldn't describe myself as a city kid, but um, I was suddenly with a lot of kids from sort of uh, farming families or horse backgrounds and things like that. And, mm. and that element, I felt a little bit alien to. And I, I did do my bit of work experience before uni and things, obviously. But so, so for some people, they've just been so ingrained in it their whole lives. Whereas, I mean, my my kind of growing up experience was having a couple of rabbits and goldfish and a dog, you know, um, and I was collecting <laughs> bugs in the garden. It, 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 it felt like I was a little bit out of place, you know. Um, but yeah, I, mean, I guess kind of sort of through those years at school, I mean, obviously sort of channeled it into to wanting to be a vet and doing all the relevant stuff to get into to vet school. You mentioned imposter syndrome. I mean, you're not you're not the first person to to, to bring that up, and I guess probably won't be the last. Do you? <laughs> I, I, no, no. I, I have imposter syndrome thing every day of my life. Um, in, in every sphere of my life as well, going to a supermarket and think I should be buying this. Right, what am I going to do? I mean, honestly. Bread making flour? Can't really make bread on an imposter. Tell us about the imposter syndrome. When when did you start to get that? I mean, because um, let's face it, as soon as you qualify, you're, you're an imposter because you, you our day one qualifications, our day one uh, knowledge is not quite there, is it? Yeah, um, it, it's funny because I mean, I, I'm doing the um, like the graduate coaching scheme for new grads mm. at the moment you know and um all right it it, it, it comes up a lot um mm-hmm. a lot of these like amazingly capable um adults who who feel like they've just suddenly been launched into this career that they don't belong in and um i mean it's, it's obviously very sad but it's I, think, I guess it's a slight enlightening sense knowing that everyone gets it to a degree as well you mm-hmm. know um but yeah, I mean, like I said, maybe maybe developed a little bit when I first went to uni. You, you kind of go from um, sort of certainly in my scenario was a little bit from uh, in terms of my academic capabilities was big fish, small pond into suddenly the tiniest of fish and like mm-hmm. a huge, huge pond, you know. Um, and so a, a little bit then, but obviously you realize over the years at uni, you make good friends, and you realize that everyone. Um, varying levels in different areas and then yeah as a new grad I guess um, I went into um, initially into mixed practice so lots of farm work and equine work and um, small animal stuff as well Um, I mean equine was almost like an entirely different world to me as well Um, you know me me too I think equine is a different world it is it is did you so I I did mixed practice as well for the first three years and although I I love horses even the ones that kick me in the head uh, I was never accepted into the horse world because I they could tell that I was an imposter it wasn't me having imposter syndrome it was, you haven't grown up around horses, have you? Well, no, but actually I know that that's medial malleolitis. Yeah, young fucker, that's curb, that is. You don't know anything. Well, that's, that's it. That's what I said. No, you didn't. You said this thing ending in itis. That's curb, for heaven's sake. You know, nothing. That is, that is an incredibly <laughs> familiar story to me. It's, 
like I knew what I was doing and I, I, I liked working with horses and I was I, I thought I was actually for my level of experience I was actually fairly competent with it in hindsight but you'd go out to a yard and um yeah I mean people would like they'd all start listing in clustering in like this person would give their opinion this person would give their opinion um a bit bitchy as well sometimes I found but yeah um yeah, yeah. the number of horses that some other some other horse owner would quite happily volunteer a diagnosis of the horse having a, a sore back because the owner was overweight. Um, yeah. <laughs> obviously, de- dealing with that sometimes takes some tact as well. So, um, but yeah, so I, I guess kind of was it was going into that world as a new grad where you're already feeling so underprepared for the world. Um, Incidentally, for me, I mean, at, at the time, I was I was starting to deal with my sexuality as well. Um, I was quite sort of late to to start kind of understanding it, you know. Um, and yeah, the, I mean, the the farming world, I, I loved it, but it is a very kind of sort of heterosexual, masculine world. Um, and um, I remember, I mean, there's one thing that I specifically remember at one point where um, the, the farmers were sometimes quite particular who, who went out to the farms. And I mean, I was a local lad, so I was from Aberdeen. Um, so I, I, I seemed to be fairly popular with them in terms of new graduates, you know. And um, I remember hmm. a farmer calling up and saying to one of the receptionists, don't send one of those women vets um, to the reception. <laughs> absolutely appalling, you know. But um, it was sometimes what they were like. And I just mm. remember thinking at that time, I was, it was this kind of sinking feeling in my chest. I was like, oh my God, they're going to call up one day and be like, don't send that gay vet. And uh, like, I, it, it, that, that line of don't send that woman vet sticks with me. So I was like, if these female vets that I'm working with are mm. far more capable than me, if they can be reduced just to that, based on interest to help their animals you know like mm. what what are they going to do if they know i'm gay and i was just I, I and i thought in that moment i was like i can't let them know you know so i i was still figuring it out you know um and i wasn't out mm. to friends and family really at that stage either um but i was like i, I can't be out at work i i i wouldn't i wouldn't cope with that i don't think that'd be a, a wise mm. decision you know and it, it's such a shame that i felt that you know that, that is a shame, really, because that's mm. there's that whole level of stigma that's being applied onto you. And if you're not fully comfortable with where you are, then that that's that's sort of a very, very clear indication of imposter, isn't it? Because, yeah, I mean, I guess that's I mean, I, I guess in this sense, I mean, the, the, the twist here in it is that it was me applying that stigma. That it was me okay. expecting that response. I never actually got that response from them. I, I mean, or at least reflecting it, weren't you? There's an assumed reflection of that. Exactly. Story. I mean, for all I know, I mean, I doubt it, but for all I know, if I had been out in that job, I might have turned up to the farm. They would have been waving rainbow flags, throwing glitter, and uh, <laughs> praising that I'd arrived. You know, like. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was it was an odd time for me, I guess, because. Here was me doing what I loved, yet feeling not just from my experience, but also who I was, that I didn't quite belong in that world. And I mean, obviously, I mentioned uh, what they said about female vets. And I was like, well, what do they go through? I mean, people of color, um, mm-hmm. again, like, are they, are they welcomed into these worlds, you know? And um, 
I think kind of sort of particularly the, the farming community, I, I love them. Um, it was great. But when you've got communities, maybe got slightly more traditional views, you kind of you do worry about how it's going to be received. I think you do. And I think um, in the farming community, there's probably because of the commercial aspect to it, um, you're not just dealing with someone's beloved pet, or obviously uh, they, they, they love their animals as well, but there is pure money. And so there's almost a, a need to go in and sort things out immediately. There's less of the, the touchy-feely, well, let's yeah. try this, let's yeah. try that. And so you've, you've got to be capable from the first visit, haven't you? And I, I know uh, for, for a, a different perspective, when I did my farm vetting, um, most farm vets are, you know, six foot three, in, in my experience. I know they're not, but you know, my, my boss was. And there's, there's me five foot five going along, a new grad. The good thing was that I was a mature student. And so they think, well, he's an older person, but he's still bloody sure. And it didn't help my boss gave me a milk crate to stand on. He said, you'll need this. You'll need this because you're doing a load of PDs. Uh, he said, I told uh, the farmer that you're, you know, you're short. <laughs> Very caring boss. I told the farmer you're short. And so he, he understands. So I, I turned up with my milk crate and uh, it, was, it was a herd of Dexters, which a miniature miniature breed so <laughs> the farmer and i shared a good old laugh at that one not your perfect height for it no bad back <laughs> <laughs> but, but I, again i felt the need to overprove myself to try yeah. and be super capable yeah. Of that. yeah and so for I mean, you yes i can see how difficult it would have been yeah. to. but i mean I, again, I mean i was i was white local male um you know mm. to all intents and purposes i was, I was straight to them as well so and I, I i saw the female vets i was working with having to prove themselves much more than i was you know mm. um but yeah it, it did leave me with this thing of i can't i can't say anything you know i can't yeah. right now not this point in my life and i had the most wonderful team um like the people i was working with were all fantastic and they would have no doubt been incredibly supportive if i had been ready to do that, you know. So what, what made you ready? Yeah. And then what did you do? Um, oh, wow. Yeah. I, I think, um, I think uh, just learning who I was, you know, and uh, I, that just happens with time. And um, I think over the, over the years after that, I kind of sort of realized, well, actually, do I want to kind of be hiding who I am? No. And um, mm. by that point, yeah, very happy and um, so well supported um, friends um we're all amazing um and things like that family family too yeah so good did you did you get the reaction that you expected when from you... sort of friends from... and family yeah hmm. um i guess like it's, it's, it's difficult because you, you internalize the whole thing so much mm -hmm. like you I, I, when you do actually come out i mean it's so hard to explain and everyone has such a different experience of course mm -hmm. um but I, I, I guess for me, everything I created was in my head. Um, mm. But like mm. I said, I was I was very fortunate. I'm not I'm not from some kind of diehard religious family um, and things. So I, I wasn't in a world that's going to negatively respond to it. Right. Um, obviously, and so many people are. And but yeah, no, I, I think I created almost like a demon out of it in the sense that you think people are going to be awful about it but then actually when you think about it you know none of them are because these are your, your people that you surround yourself with like your dear friends mm. your dear family and things and 
you, you know they love you. So I, I don't know. It, it obviously does take take courage even then. But yeah. um, and it, I mean, it took me a lot of time to kind of sort of get to that stage to be comfortable to, to do it as well. And you still have yeah. to take that step, don't you? Well, yeah. I mean, that's the that's the mad thing, isn't it? I mean, I guess kind of it'd be nice to to be in a place where people don't need to feel they need to make that step. You know? Yeah. Yeah, because you know you don't say to someone so well, you heterosexual are you or no no of course not like it's, wow. it, it sounds bizarre when you say it but yeah. like but at yeah. the same time it was like and it's i mean it's funny because even even now sometimes consulting small animal vet london which is the gayest place in the uk um <clears> i still <throat> feel i sometimes need to come out to people um okay like you'll have a client and they'll like they'll make some comment or they'll say something. I was like, oh, like how's your girlfriend or whatever. And I'll be like, oh, boyfriend. Um, and it, you still like, I mean, obviously, I, I I now say it from generally like a place of pride yeah. um, that I can say that, you know. But um, it is this it is a slightly ingrained thing, and I mean. Hmm. Um, obviously, I mean you. I mean, I think you guys have spoken about microaggressions before at work, and yeah. um, obviously, I mean, so many of these things are well intentioned. No one means harm. <laughs> some of them, but you get some of these microaggressions that even now, like sort of, when you're when I'm in a very comfortable place with my sexuality, but you've got like you, you hand out a pink Buster collar to a male dog, and the client says, "Oh, have you got a different color? I don't want the other dogs thinking he's you know." And you're like, I, I, I want to laugh because it's so silly. Yeah. But at the same time, like, there's a little bit of me is a bit like, oh, like, didn't yeah. realize that was an issue. That's right. Um, FFS. Yeah. yeah. Or they'll, they'll be like, oh, yeah, my dog, he's been humping the other, the other boy dogs at work, uh, in the park. I think he's a bit, you know, and you're just like, oh, like, I'm a bit, you know, <laughs> it's like, um, yeah. yeah. Oh, oh, it's just, it's, it's when they can apply these these insecurities about that to their pets, you know. Mm. Um, and, I mean, and you say, and you say they're not, they're not ill-intentioned. And, and, and I guess these people would be mortified if they thought they were creating any uh, uh, ill will, any, any horror, any shock, any, any offence. But it, it is intention because there's that cultural ingrained yeah. homophobia, yeah. As, as there is racism, as there is sexism. Uh, and we can either hope that actually over the next couple of generations that's going to get better, or we could try and actually make a difference with every conversation we have, couldn't we? And that's, it's, God, that's a tiring thing to do, isn't it? But Well, that's the thing. I mean, you, you know, when you're, I mean, you're, you're run off your feet, you're trying to do all these consults at once mm. and everything. And like to have that, to experience that microaggression, you know, um, be it, like sort of slightly ill meant because sometimes I do think there is like a bit more kind of blatant homophobia there um or whether it's completely well it's never completely innocent you know but um or whether it's sort of well-intentioned humor um correcting someone it takes a bit of you each time to do it you know yeah um I suppose yeah. a lot a lot depends on on where you are that day at that time isn't it in, yeah. you, in yourself and yeah. sometimes you're just going to go yeah whatever yeah but other yeah. times you're going to be in a vulnerable position and just that one little comment is going to just cut right through yeah. 
And it's exactly. it's like it's like the I suppose in many respects it's it's a little bit like the um, the complaint or the the one bad thing that happens, mm-hmm. yeah. and suddenly as as humans we forget all of the hundred positives that we've dealt with that day. Yes, and we focus on that one negative. Yeah, that that, that someone has judged you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Wrongly, yeah. you you believe wrongly, and 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 therefore that that is your sentence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 One of the bravest things I think I, I ever saw among my my clients. I always said my clientele. Uh, <laughs> a different thing, isn't it? Really, my client. Uh, I was working in uh, in Wimbledon, and um, the, there was a client, young young chap. I'd, I'd seen his pet for you know, several times. And we were, we were chatting as, as you would do at the end of a consult, you know, having, having cured his dog of whatever you know, minor ailment he had. Um, and he asked me out. Uh, I said, you know, are you, you free next Friday? And I, I, I said, oh, dear, it's Friday, next Friday, nothing else made. So he said, well, I'll just kind of see if, if you want to go out with me. And um, I this look of surprise. Uh, my eyes, and he said, "Oh, oh God, no! no, no I, I've, 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 I'm, I'm sorry, I've misread." And I said, "No, you haven't, haven't misread at all. You know, I'm, I'm not. I'm not actually gay." Um, but yeah, thank you so much for asking me. Um, you know, no, I'm afraid is the answer. But but actually, you know, well done, and thanks, thanks for asking me. I'm very, very flattered. Um, but it, it struck me that later on. You know, what, what a thing to, to have done yeah. and in his situation I don't know if I would have been to breathe yeah I mean that's hats off to him yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and then it struck me that one of the only times it's ever really mattered to me whether someone's gay or not is if it's someone I'm trying to ask out <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but actually it doesn't matter then either does it because they're either going to say yes or no it's going to be one or the other. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Is it confession Mike, time? A couple of my yeah. first girlfriends have turned out to be gay. Well, probably because of you, actually, there, Mike, isn't yeah, it? probably. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, incidentally, my, my childhood girlfriend turned out to be gay. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So. All good, all good stuff. Yeah. All good stuff. I, I, I want to pick up on, Chris, something you were saying earlier, because um, you were talking about mentoring students. Mm-hmm. And then we talked about imposter syndrome and, and we moved the, moved the topic through there. So have you got any particular coping strategies? Because it strikes me that you've got yourself, but if you're operating as a mentor as well, then are there, are there any particular coping strategies that you, that you share, would share with us? I think... I don't know. I, I I like to encourage them to do uh, like sort of positive reflections. Um, so whenever we have our meetings and things, I I, I can almost like set them homework in advance. Um, and sometimes we kind of maybe we'll twist it to theme, like um, um, sort of some sort of situation that you've dealt with uh, with a client where there's been a communication issue that you have overcome. But it's still it's still a victory ultimately, you know. And um, it's, it's like you mentioned earlier, you, you can do a thousand good things in a day, and it's just that one 
thing that cuts you and it reduces you to a mess. Yeah. And so kind of, I guess, I mean, I've got no formal training in this, I guess. Um, but it's, to me, it's about kind of going home and looking at at least one positive of what you have done, you know, and, um, I mean, we, but when you say look at it, how, how do you mean look at it? Sorry, I, I, I think just kind of almost like um, applaud yourself on it, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, think that was actually, in reflection, that was a really challenging situation or that could have ended really badly um, mm-hmm. had I not done this. And, you know, I think when you start looking at it, even in most situations, so even when things go wrong, there's still some positive reflection you can get from those situations. Probably not the time. <laughs> you don't want to dwell on it when something's <laughs> it, happening. It may take yeah. years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know. And but if you can kind of like sort of be able to take some positive from it, and even maybe if that's a learning experience, you know, you know, now oh, next time I do this, I'll I'll do it slightly differently and things. So, um, yeah, I kind of like to sort of set the max. I think I think in terms of imposter syndrome, if you've got, if you're giving yourself constant validation, I think you start realizing that you do you do belong you know um and it's it's difficult to wait to get that validation from other people um and if you've got good mentors if you've got good management of course you do get some of that validation from them and certainly you'll you'll, you'll get it from clients as well but as you said it's it's the ones that you don't get it from that reduce everything that you have received validation wise to nothing so mm. so in effect giving yourself a bit of a pat on the back a yeah. bit of positive reflection yeah i mean, I, I mean does I gratitude does gratitude come in there gratitude hmm. yeah i'm uh, definitely um i got i was quite good for like doing my gratitudes for a while but um i haven't been as good recently but it, it, me and my boyfriend went through a phase where we would text each other each night a list of things we were grateful for that day um yeah. and it's amazing because even when you've had literally the worst day you can be like, oh, the bus driver like was really nice when I got on the bus or something like something really little, or you got like, um, you, there was like a meal deal that you managed to get or something like, um, and it, like, I think gratitude like that are really good as well because, um, I mean, it, it was quite nice doing them before bed because it was very much like, I'm going to bed on this kind of this clean mind on, on a positive. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When there's plenty of other things I could have probably been dwelling on. Yeah. I'm gonna. When we first started off on this uh, veteran ramblings, um, I used to annoy Mike by, by telling a joke each episode, and I'm gonna annoy him now because there's a joke that fits in with this perfectly. But but actually, yes, it's an analogy for modern life, and it's it's a joke about this uh, this guy who, who gets the same train every morning, and uh, he always sits opposite this other chap who's you know, very smartly dressed, nice tailored suit, and um, he gets the same train going to work and the same train coming back. And he, this guy sort of hobbles onto the train and sits down, does that a little bit. And on the way back, he says, oh, I can't be glad to get these shoes off it. Oh, they're so uncomfortable. Every day for five years, he says that. So this chap in the end says, look, so I've got to ask. He says, you, you, you're not short of a penny or two. You've clearly got a good job. And, uh, you know, it's enough to buy you a, a nice suit. What, why do you wear uncomfortable shoes? I mean, surely you can just buy a pair of shoes that fit. He said, look, I've got, um, 
I've got three whining kids at home. My wife nags me all the time. I have got a good job, but it's a really high pressure job. And the boss is on me from the moment I get into work, from the moment I leave, to the moment I leave. And, you know, I've got to hit targets, left, right and centre. The only relief I get each day is taking these fucking shoes off. <laughs> That's gratitude. You said, do you see why we dropped the joke section? there, I think. But yeah. <laughs> yeah, just to see why we dropped the jokes. <laughs> I, I think that's a shortened version of one of the Ronnie Corbett ones of years back. Uh, Quite possibly. Without swear. Yeah. <laughs> but but gratitudes possibly. are a good thing. And you've done a lot of things, I think, to, to be grateful for in your life. And a lot of things that other people should be grateful for you, not, not least of which uh, being, being a bet. Um, but you, you've done some amazing things in India, haven't you? Yeah. So um, this this was after obviously my my first job um, up in Scotland, where I worked, I worked there for two years, and I'd been itching to, to travel for a while. Um, and a vet who I'd worked with when I was a student um, had some contacts in India because he had, he had worked out there for a while at a charity. Um, and, uh, I kind of always wanted to go there. I didn't know too much about the country, you know, but I was like, well, I want to go there because it's vast, you know. Um, and so, yeah. No, and they've got more Indian restaurants than Glasgow, haven't they? Mm. Yeah, pro- probably a few more, I reckon. <laughs> Close. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, no, made the decision to, to go over there and uh, work for the charity in Jaipur um, called Health and Suffering. Um, it's a very dramatic name, help in suffering, um, but it, it, very much that works for them as a charity over there. They like to kind of emphasize these things. Um, and the most amazing thing about this charity, because I, I worked, I worked in Thailand later, another charity. The most amazing thing about this one was it was very much run by the community. And I then moved on later on. To, to Thailand and I worked at a charity there which was, was very much run by Westerners mm. for kind of Westerner approval um, and I mean they'd spend thousands relocating a dog to Norway um, and uh, I don't know it, I, I enjoyed my time there as well but certainly this, this Indian charity I mean it was the whole community was involved and it just I think it was, it was so affirming kind of as, as a vet to do that in the sense that we, we get lost in this kind of slight financial side and corporate mm-hmm. sides. Um, I mean, well, maybe we don't, but higher, higher powers um, sometimes dictate these things. Um, and to just kind of sort of stop seeing the cost of everything, but like the value of things um, was just so important. And that's a nice way of putting it. Yeah, um, I just coined that right now. (laughs) 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 But it was just um, the the way the community was involved. And I mean, Jaipur is a massive city. I I don't even know the population, but um, I I imagine it rivals London. Um, Probably, or maybe someone fact check this. it's, it's got I, I'm going to take. I'm going to take a lot. I'll say okay, that. Okay, yeah. Um, but yeah, really big city, basically. And um, there's. A, have you heard of the the kite festival? Um, yes. Yes, yeah. I have. Yes. yes. The, 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 you know the book, the kite runner. Um, that kind of. Uh, Hussaini, wasn't it? Hussein. Uh, yeah. 
I think it's set in a different country that, but the, the kite festival it, we celebrate in a few few countries. Yeah, yeah. I think it was set um, in Iran, wasn't it? In um, yeah, in I think it was more Middle Eastern yeah. than India. Um, mm-hmm. But I was there during that, and they celebrate it in Jaipur. And um, for people who don't know, they fly kites, but you aim to. It's like a game. You try and cut down other people's kites, so your the, the threads of the kite are they're lined with like ground glass, um, so they're sharp. And your the aim is to wrap your kite string around another kite and then knock it down and then you kind of win. Um, obviously, that causes a massive issue for the local population of pigeons um, who are flying around into sharp um, strings. So during this festival, you've got hundreds, if not potentially thousands, of pigeons falling to the ground um, with sometimes quite severe injuries to their wings. Um, it, it really made me reflect. I mean, Aberdeen has a lot of pigeons and a lot of seagulls, and we'd occasionally get them brought into the vets. You'd get mm-hmm. some random person bringing them in, and quite often, yes, it was that situation of humane decision for the pigeon, blah blah blah. Um, but in India, we, you'd, you'd have someone who's on their way to work on their scooter, on their way to work, find a pigeon that had been hit by a kite, pick it up drive an hour across town to this charity with this injured pigeon to take it to us and then go back to work. And there's there's these teams of dedicated people on, on mopeds who just drive around the city all day on this kite festival collecting these injured pigeons. Wow. And I mean by the end of the day we had we had collected over 200 pigeons into this one charity center. Hmm. And I mean not to put different values on different animals' lives, of course, but in the UK that would not happen. It, it I, wouldn't. I it pigeon, wouldn't. You know. It, um, yeah, absolutely. That's what we would say. But, but there's, there's there's a life there that can suffer, and uh, yeah, um, and it, that's it, it, amazing. Yeah, it was just amazing to see people's attitude towards that. Um, and yeah, it's just uh, incredible community, and uh, it was just such a stunning country as well. And. Um, yeah, no, the, the attitudes to animals were really, really, really great. Yeah, yeah. I've actually I've got some pictures up of the kite festival. It's amazing, sure, doesn't it? Oh, I'm sure there's, there's a real conflict going on here. Oh, really? I mean, uh, I mean, they love their festivals over there and things like that. But um, <laughs> it is interesting because I mean, before going over, I had I had a number of people say to me, "Oh, the, the animal welfare standards over there are not good. Their attitudes are, are bad to animals." And, and I mean, certainly they, they've still got some working elephants, which is obviously not ideal, though they are, it's been phased out. And it, I think they're the last working elephants now. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting when you see, because we were working primarily with dogs, but we worked with cows quite a lot as well. Now mm-hmm. in India, cows are obviously the holiest of, of creatures. Um, and don't quote me on this. I, I think it's, each one contains like three million gods, I think, or something like that, you know, and um, yeah. are really revered. And um, people buy food and take them to cows, and they they really lead great lives. Um, but it's interesting because that it does take a flip when you then have cows in not so good welfare situations. Um, right. So obviously, I mean, we're we're very used to euthanasia. Um, hmm. in our profession and we know that some sometimes other cultures and religions um sometimes struggle with with the idea the concepts 
um, of it. And uh, in India was, was particularly interesting when it came to cows. Um, so basically, it's a, it's actually illegal to euthanize a cow um, in, well, at least in that state of Rajasthan. Um, mm-hmm. in um, and it's well, seven years in, in prison um, for doing so. So oh, what? Um, it obviously then raises a really kind of interesting ethical dilemma. Yeah. Right? yeah. So how would that work out? You have a you have a cow that has um, a, an unresolvable clinical problem. What, what do you do? Well, um, I mean, I, I remember there was one cow we got called out to. Um, because cows have the run of the place, they do what they want. Um, and had been hit by a car, um, and the cow had at least three open fractured legs. Um, I mean, it doesn't take someone who's not worked with cows before to know that there's, there's literally no chance of coming back from that. Mm. But yeah, so I mean, it, it raises this, this ethical dilemma. I mean, I was, I was mm. working with with Indians predominantly, and um, there's one fantastic that I need to mention, Tim Jack Reese. Um, he's, I don't know if you've heard of him, he's, um, he's, he's well known in kind of sort of charity and, and rabies circles and things like that. He's done a lot of research out there and things. Mm. Um, and yeah, so you, you, you've got a cow that you need to consider euthanasia for, and it's, it's a crime to do so. Um, but you also just can't leave that cow suffering. Now, um, a lot of the Indians, the locals that we were working with, um, they were they, they they knew the situation and they were they're very kind of understanding and um, they worked with you on it. Um, but essentially, what we had to do is, under cover of darkness, we'd we'd, we'd get the cow in, we'd give it some pain relief, let the cow settle. Um, under cover of darkness, you'd you'd sneak out. Um, do the euthanasia, um, and then where I mean, for example, where we had injected into the neck, we rubbed dirt on, um, hmm. and just so there was no sign um, had been done. Um, we also used um, potassium chloride rather than pentobarbital because it's apparently, again, maybe don't quote me on this, but apparently undetectable after death. Uh, whereas pentobarbital, you can, you can uh, yeah, the potassium will leak out the vessels, won't it? Yeah, exactly. Uh, I think you naturally stable. get increased. Not, not that I've ever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this has suddenly become a true crime podcast. But Chris, I was just saying, Chris, that you're suggesting here an element of, of post mortem and and chemical analysis going on afterwards. I I don't think it's policed to that level. Right. Um, mm. Now. Um, is this, a, is this a confession team I'm doing? Um, but um, obviously, I mean, it's, you, you weren't there. Well, well, I was, I was just maybe witness. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, it was um, obviously it's, it's a big conflict as a vet when you know and you're, you're used to euthanasia being hmm. a very reasonable treatment option for animals, you know, um, to alleviate suffering and. You've got an animal that's suffering and legally you can't actually do anything about it unless you break the law. Um, has to be. So do you, is, is said animal then discovered and sadly passed away in the middle of the yeah, night? Next morning, sadly passed away. Um, there is a little mm. smudge of dirt on its neck that no one bats an eyelid at. Um, and like I said, a lot of the local community that we're working with, at least some of the more um, senior and uh, experienced members, they were aware. They knew 
what we were doing. But they, they turn a blind eye to it be- yeah, because I, of the I, welfare. I think, yeah. I mean, there's that sense of rationality about it as well. Things. I mean, um, and obviously, I mean, I, I can't speak for um, the culture at all, you know, but um, I mean, being privy to that, it's just kind of like a fascinating study of kind of what we have as vets, you know, yeah. our, in yeah. our hands. And, but yeah. I, I, th- I think some human doctors in our uh, UK hospitals do the same. <laughs> and I can think of some right cows that need put into sleep, to be honest. There you go. <laughs> but that's a different story. That's a whole different story. Well, that's, that's fascinating. So what, what is the prognosis for a cut-up pigeon that's been brought all the way across um, the town on the back of a moped, having yeah. been shot down by a kite... Or a kite string with uh, with glass beads in the string. Um, I'd say they had a really good success rate. Actually, um, they had they had a big aviary, um, and I mean, it had hundreds of pigeons in it. And um, at one point, we had a, a, a clear out um, where essentially we released as many as we could, and mm-hmm. lots of them did really well. I mean, it, obviously, it depends on the severity of the injuries, but there was a few pigeons that were. Um, they lost the wing, you know, um, but they were kind of kept at this this charity. Um, really? As, yeah, well, they had this big aviary and they had mm. these, these pigeons that were kind of safe well. within it and, I don't know, fairly content. So, I mean, but it, it's interesting that kind of sac- that contrast of kind of like obviously the sanctity of life mm. of what culturally we deem as uh, like a very run-of-the-mill animal, you know, a pigeon um, versus kind of Obviously, at what point does life, when you're suffering, lose? You know, um, I don't. I don't know. It's, it's it, it, it was just you know, it's it, it's something that will, would go way, way beyond our, our one hour. Oh, 100%. It? I mean, I, I, I mean, I've known clients who have become really very, very depressed after the loss of a hamster, and, and uh, I was going to say, and why not? You know, it's, it's an odd thing to say, isn't it? You're your pet can be your life and whether that's you know a mammal a reptile an insect i don't know if people get as attached to the stick insects but i'm sure i'm sure along the way people have been one of my girlfriends i definitely buried my (laughs) stick insects when i was a kid there you (laughs) go Good answer, Chris. <laughs> um, whether I was as emotionally cut up as when we lost my first dog, um, that's maybe slightly different, you know. But yeah, we, we're, we're not to judge, are we? People will love their pets in varying ways and, and, and apparently not love them sometimes. Well, yeah. Um, so, yeah, interesting. But wow, India, elephants and... Uh, so they still they, they they do still have elephants in some states of India working the woodyards, don't they? Mm, I'm not sure they do that anymore. Um, so I was there five years ago, um, mm. or six years maybe, um, and the ones that we were so in Rajasthan, the elephants were kind of tourist elephants. Um, mm. They kind of do tours and things like that. They weren't used for logging, um, and they were the last working elephants in India from what I remember um, as in what they've done is they no longer are breeding or um, 
sort of captivating um, any mm. elephants for work, um, but they will allow these ones to essentially work until retirement. Um, but there's, there's a big push, obviously. There was um, we went out with the elephant vet a couple of times um, to go and do inspections, um, mm. basically treat some kind of common ailments and elephants. <laughs> um, and so yeah, it was, it was interesting to see to see that because obviously, yeah. I mean, it's a it's always sort of got that kind of association with India, you know, people think, oh, working elephants and stuff like that. But um, it's really great that they've now actually been able to kind of reach the stage that they're at. Right. So did you, did you, you said that you also worked in Thailand. Mm -hmm. So did you come across the working elephants in Thailand? Because that's one of the. Yes. So I didn't, but I, I know in the north, um, I think mm -hmm. it was like Chiang Mai. Um, mm -hmm. I think they've certainly got, um, elephant sanctions and things up there, but I, I was working. They, on they got some very good ones. They were seen yeah. one called Elephant Hills a few years yes. back. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Excellent. Um, I, I'd love to go out and kind of see these sanctions and things, you know. Um, but yeah, no, I was working. It, it, it predominantly dogs and cats. Um, on yeah. Thailand, I worked with. Um, Where, whereabouts in Thailand were you? Uh, so Kulanta. Kulanta. Okay. Yeah. 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 Whereabouts uh, that? So I've been to. Thailand, my sense of geography is awful. So it's near Krabi. Um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So kind down, of down, like two thirds of the way down, maybe yeah. down, down, down to the right, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, something like that. Yeah. yeah. So how, how long were you there for then, Chris? Um, just a month, and then kind of travelled onwards after that. But India's been quite a bit longer there. I was there for about three months total. Wow, mm, fantastic. Any but plans when, to when go we back? In... Sorry, Sorry. Any plans to go back? Oh, I, I, I've been wanting to go back to India for a while and um, I don't know, I, I'm studying quite a lot at the moment and quite happy with kind of work situation things. So maybe not yet, but mm -hmm. at some point in the future, I'd love to. What are you yeah. studying for? Um, I've got, oh, it's in, I'm going to look at the, the calendar. It's in like six weeks. I've got um, an internal medicine exam. Okay. <laughs> so oh, I, did wow. my, um, I did my start AVP. Yeah, congratulations. Advanced veterinary practice. Certificate advanced veterinary yeah. practice. Well done. <laughs> Congratulations, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, imposter syndrome, but I feel like I don't deserve it, you know. But um, so, yeah, I, I did that and um, finished it uh, through Liverpool Uni about a year and a half ago. But you can essentially then do um, the synoptic exam, which makes it a designated certificate. Mm -hmm. So um, that's what I'm currently studying for. Um, but yeah, it's. Uh, I think it's a similar setup to this where I'm, I'm on a Zoom call actually with some specialists and they quiz me on some cases. Fantastic. So what, what aspect of internal medicine do you really like? Um, it's the detective work. That's yeah. what I, I, I just find that um, I, I, I enjoy like surgery. I enjoy um, lots of other aspects of small animal practice, but I, it's the detective work that I love that you kind of, you're kind of presented with one thing, you know, and then you, you take a bit of information from here and then the, you quiz the client, you get some more information yeah. and stuff and then kind of sort of gradually building that together. And I mean, it can be sometimes really unsatisfying, but it can be really, really satisfying when it all comes together. Cool. It's, it, there's a huge amount of communication involved, isn't there, in internal medicine because you're, 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 you're taking yeah. the, the owners on a journey with you that, that isn't always straight and doesn't always clear cut. Yeah, I, I certainly think so. I mean, obviously, I mean, with surgery, I guess it's sometimes more a bit like here's going to be your quick 
answer, you know. Um, That's why I like surgery. It's in one lady, <laughs> out the neck. It's fine. But it's like, yeah, I mean, it's, it's you've got a problem, you're going to sort it, you know. And I, I, mean, I find that really satisfying as well. And I think kind of, I mean, there's certainly a lot of communication needed about that with possible complications and stuff. But um, I guess with the internal medicine thing, you, you kind of have to get owners on board to mm. keep coming back and make sure they know the importance of, well, why do we need to check this blood test in three weeks' time? Why do we need to do this additional test on this sample? Why have you not got an answer for me? And I think that's ultimately the kind of explaining to clients that the medical process is not do X, Y, and Z tests, and it gives you a straight answer. It's starting with a list of 100,000 possibilities and scoring them out one by one. So every day is still a school day for you then, Chris? 100%, yeah. Excellent. Um, I think that's that's kind of the joy of our profession, you know, isn't it? You've got um, like a, 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 like literally just two weeks ago, I had um, so I got a pet tortoise that I that he was brought into work as a stray. Oh um, yeah. So I've now become yeah. Someone found him in their garden. Feral tortoise running yeah. around central London. It's what London is like, apparently. One of our tortoises was, was brought in as a stray, yeah. and no one ever claimed it's, him. It's but, apparently yeah. a really common thing. And only when we were trying to find the order did we find this, this massive databases of lost and found tortoises. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, so I've, I've basically become nominated as the, the practices tortoise vet, um, <laughs> as, as you do. So, um, yeah. And I had one brought in just the, just the other week where... Um, he hadn't been eating very well. It wasn't associated with hibernation. And so we did an X-ray, and he had um, he had six or seven sort of significant-sized stones in him um, in his gastrointestinal tract. And she did say that he, he does bite at the stones and things. Um, and do, 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 do you do you know this about how you get them out of a tortoise? Mm, okay, we, I, I I do, but please do <laughs> educate me. Um, there's there's a really great. Um, if you ever want a good laugh, there's a really lovely written case report um, on a tortoise that had a similar issue um, where they used, uh, I'm trying to think of what their wording was. Um, I think it might have been a vibrating self-pleasure device is what they referred to it in the, yeah. in the paper yeah. as. And they strapped it to his plastrons underneath the tortoise. Yeah. And they did this vibration therapy. Um, it, it's all becomes, it's, it's legitimate if you call it a therapy. Um, they did it um, like twice a, a rampant, day. And, a rampant rabbit for yeah. tortoise. Well, the best thing about it was, do you know when you read a paper and it's, it's got a product, you have to state the product's name yeah. afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and this one, amazingly, was called Rocks Off. And it's, it's definitely... <laughs> You can't write that. It's just, it's just perfect. I know. I've, um, I've read, I've read the article. It, it, you must uh, read, listeners out there. You must read it. It's, just, it's, it's I mean, if, if something's going to get you into reading journals, it'll be this. Yeah. I promise you. It, it's, it's an exercise in the most cautious writing I've ever seen because <laughs> yeah. you know, whatever, whatever they, whatever they did, they could not sexualize it. Yeah. They had to just give the facts as lurid as it may be yeah how on earth did they decide that's the thing they they don't really give any history to it do they it has, yeah it has long been noticed that no <laughs> they did they did mention that i think they recall it the the tradition or the a, a traditional but unconventional method of putting the tortoise in a car and driving over the bumpy, yeah, the bump, the bumpy tractor ride yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
That's right. Um, a, a, a bumpy ride was simulated by music. <laughs> um, and and, yeah, and so special thanks to Samantha. <laughs> we did discuss at work whether we'd have a if we'd have a kind of like an honesty box and someone could just leave something in there for the tourist guy. <laughs> okay, guys, look, I've got another tortoise of Ethan Stones. Where is it? Yeah. Come on, come on, <laughs> who's, who's got it? Yeah. Um, there, is it? No batteries. Oh, come on, guys. <laughs> yeah. but, I, I, but to me, that's the, kind of the joy of general practice. I mean, mm-hmm. if if you, I mean, no offense to any specialist, but you're not going to get thrown that kind of that curveball on a daily basis, are you? So, no. um, yeah, every day really is a school day when you. <laughs> yeah, actually, I've got, I, I've got, I I've got it here in the Tortoise News. Rocks yeah. off to get your rocks out. It's clear. It's written <laughs> it's there. It's a one-line headline. Yeah. I, I only found well out that. I, I last was it last year? Two years ago, I had a tortoise that had eaten uh, some stones, and one was clearly uh, blocking the guts. And so I did a plastrotomy, and um, so cut a little hinged uh, hole in the plastron and removed uh, the stones in about four or five. Suit to the guts, uh, wired and fiberglass the plastron. Tortoise made a good recovery. Chatting to uh, a reptile expert afterwards, and he said, "You should have got a rampant rabbit from Anne Summers." And uh, you said, "What? What?" <laughs> he gave his answer. I've been talking to your tortoises and they've been discussing this at length and he's going, forget getting the rocks because he hasn't got a vibrator to use. Yeah. You know, if you get, you get stones, he's going to cut you open. Absolutely. No, no fun to be had here, they say. Yeah, you've got to go and see Chris. Chris will, Chris will sort it out. <laughs> well, it was, it was an interesting conversation to have um, a very um, lovely client. She's quite well to do. Um, and I just thought, because I had started the consult by saying, look, I'm not, I'm not a reptile specialist. Mm. Um, and here's me now calling her saying, can you, can you strap a dildo to your tortoise? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it, it took some, like I said, like you said, with the, the paper, it took some cautious wording to... Um, it really is it, it, an yeah. exercise in, in good brilliant. English. It's brilliant. Yeah, I'll tell you what, Chris, you, you, you've got me in the mood for learning right now. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Have you have you come across? We've got a section on the show called 60 Second CPD. Have you come across yes. this? I am aware of it. You um, are aware of it. A year since I agreed to do this. <laughs> uh, it's a shame, really, because you, you could have just done a 60 Second CPD on how to clear the stones out of your tortoise, couldn't Wait, you? Can we just put that through as my one? <laughs> no, 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 because I, I wasn't timing it, you see. I've, I've oh, got, what a shame! Got, what a shame! I've got my timer here. So, so are you up for a sixty-second CPD, then, Chris? I am indeed. Yeah. What are you going to talk about? Um, so, I'm going to talk about the problem with resilience. The problem with resilience. Yeah, okay. Okay. Um, yeah. In, in line with kind of some of our, some of the topics we're discussing about. I was going to say that that sort of fits in line with with quite a bit of the stuff that we've we've been discussing this evening. So that's that's really good. Okay. All right. Then. Let me let me key this up for you then. So I get Chris, one take right. Yeah. yeah, one take against the clock. You'll see the timer up here. Okay. So right. you can work through there. So, Dr. Chris Wilson, one minute, 60 second CPD on resilience, starting now. 
So in recent years, there has been a noticeable push in the veterinary industry to promote resilience in individuals. Um, it's very much a well-intentioned process to increase staff retention, mental health, and et cetera. Um, and there's no doubt we need to be emotionally resilient at times. I mean, we do deal with the full spectrum of human emotion, often at its most raw. And however, there is a problem in resilience. Um, so in encouraging it, we shift the focus onto the individual um, and make their vulnerability the problem when ultimately it's the system that is the problem and also in becoming resilient we become more tolerant of adversity so we put up with long hours rude clients and sensitive management poor pay etc um, and toxic positivity is also the opportunity to, to sneak in there as well and um, rather what we need to be doing is nurturing workplaces that don't require us to be so resilient in the first place um, and focusing on ways we can change the industry to protect our vulnerabilities. Um, basically, as a profession, we need to feel not grow hardened, and that's a minute. Very good. Well done. That is, that's quite <laughs> tough with the pressure. It is, isn't it? You did brilliantly. You did very, very well. So I guess what it boils down to is if you really need to use your resilience, then actually there's something wrong with the process. There's something wrong yeah. with the system. Yeah, yeah. and I, I'm not... I'm not criticising the fact that I do think we need some resilience in our profession. I, I, I do believe that. Of course. We deal with difficult emotional things that no matter how you deal with them are still emotional things mm. to deal with. But I think my concern is there's this kind of sort of push to select individuals who are resilient to get into vet school and to become vets and work at your practice and everything. And it's like, at what point do we take a step back and say, why do they need to be resilient? Like we're, we're yeah. a caring profession, you know. We should be we should be exposing our vulnerabilities and be be open to talking about them rather than kind of becoming hardened and putting up with everything that we do, you know. Um, so yeah, because yeah, we we do there, there there is a a real culture, isn't there? Of uh, yeah, wow, we made it through that day, great. Yeah, but actually, if every day is a we made it through that day, day, then there's something wrong. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I mean, I'm just as guilty of that. This is at times as well, you know, but there's this kind of, we take a slight pride, like a sick kind of pride mm -hmm. in like how difficult our job is, you know, and um, it, it's odd when you reflect on that. I don't think that, I don't think that's right. You know, it, it, it's, it's interesting. When, when, do, do you have a lunch break every day? Uh, um, <laughs> do you have a tea break? Uh, do you have a coffee break? I, I am lucky to work with very good colleagues that try and encourage that we get breaks. Um, and I'm, I'm very mm. fortunate, but I, we've got a fantastic team where I work and we, we, we look out for each other. And I think, that, I think that's really important. Um, and yeah, sometimes hugely, um, hugely. That, that's very interesting, isn't it? Because I, I only recently came across this working for the NHS. Where well, so my wife and I were both uh, vaccinators. Almost regimentedly, you know, despite the fact you've got a whole line of patients that you you felt you had to see, you were told, "Off you go, half mm. an hour. Don't want to see you back. We'll we'll cope." Mm. You go. You're having a break. And you sort of yeah. go, yeah. "Yeah, but I can just yeah, but I could just uh, and we've got and and off you go." Mm. And it, it was it was quite regimented in that, and uh, uh, I've not come across it before. Really it was, nice, no. Yeah, it's quite shocking. In, in our profession, uh, well, it, uh, and Michael is Mike isn't a vet, but Mike's business relies on him being at the other end of the line 
for vets to phone him. And so, I don't know, do you take lunch breaks, Mike? No. 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 Do we? Right. No, because that's that's the job we do. Why shouldn't we? Yeah. I mean, and, that, that's the thing, isn't it? It's, hmm. Why do we accept that as the norm? Um, and hmm. therefore, then you've got individuals who maybe are struggling or not coping, and they're the problem. It, it shouldn't be like that. It should be about the systems. The hmm. systems. I don't want to say broken because I, I love our industry. I don't think it's broken. I think it's just looking at the paradigm in a different way. Yeah. And, yeah. and it's overcoming. If I sometimes beautiful sunny day, I've got a team that can look after stuff. I don't need to be there. Mm-hmm. And the worst case scenario is I can take my mobile phone and I can go off for a walk in the woods at the back of the house with the dog. Yeah. Why do I feel guilty? Mm. Why do I feel guilty for doing that? That, That's the true imposter syndrome, isn't it? The, oh, I'm having a break and I shouldn't. I'm I'm upstairs having a cup of coffee and and they're downstairs dealing with Mrs. Biggie's little dog because actually I should be down there doing that. Uh, And I don't think think people realise that that actually as vets and and ancillaries, we work stupid hours. Mm-hmm. And rarely get a break. Yeah. And yet we're expected to look fresh faced. Well, was the <coughs> present company accepted? But we're expected to look fresh faced and intelligent and on the ball with every case. How can we do that for for a twelve hour day? It's difficult, isn't it? Hang on. So I, Chris is obviously the fresh faced. I'm the intelligent. Well, I say, on the ball. I say Where, we. And, and, yeah, I know. I, I, I sort of thought it was. You know, fresh faced in terms of him, not us. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I've just got good light here. That's that's all it is. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. A good, a good light in twenty years on us, <laughs> and the rest, <laughs> and the and the rest. I oh, I, I think know. I think Chris, you you've given an amazing presentation on resilience. That was that was fantastic yeah. CBD, and I think that's deserving of a certificate. Oh, I forgot about that. And by pure coincidence, I happen to have a a CPD certificate oh, wow. with me, and it, it says, "It says there we go. It says certificate of resilience." <laughs> this proves that if you can put up with us, then you must be resilient. Tar very muchly. True resilient. And so, what have we got? We got a, we got a rainbow. There we go. I thought we needed a rainbow. Excellent. We got a tortoise. I was hoping you'd bring tortoise in at the last minute, um, and we got a tortoise's willy. Now, the reason for that is I, I do a bit of tortoise work, and this was my own tortoise that developed um, persistent priapism, oh, yes. and I had to actually amputate his willy. Oh, and he, he looks at me balefully now. Have you ever seen a tortoise look balefully? Then you okay. know what I'm talking about. But not only does know, he not get to play with his vibrator, he hasn't got a willy to He doesn't. It, it, you know, it would do nothing to him now. The rocks are <laughs> nothing. He, he'll be eating his cucumber and he'll suddenly stop and he'll look at me and go, Bastard. And I'll know. I'll they, know they have a surprising range of emotions when they look at you. They really do. They really do. So, what else do we have? So, here we go. This is, this is a picture of a cow. Highland coo. That's a Highland coo. Oh no, it's not. It's not. Actually. Oh, is it? it looks it's a bit like it. Oh, oh no, sorry, sorry. Take that back. Oh it's, no, it's, it's not. It's a strange. No, I think it's. An, I think it's an Ethiopian longhorn. Okay. 
but more um, into the style that you'd see in India, I presume. Absolutely, yeah. So oh, put that in yeah. just to just to show what uh, what happens. Now here's me here's me swimming. So I thought you'd bring up swimming, or I thought we'd bring up yeah. swimming. And this, do you remember, Mike? A few months back, uh, I spoke about the time I was swimming in the sea in Greece, and I acquired a friend. Yes. And, and this this guy appeared from nowhere, <laughs> and and swam with me for, for, for pretty much the whole day and sort of stuck with us. I couldn't speak any Greek. I, I speak a bit now, but not enough to be able to understand what on earth he was saying. Uh, but he became my friend for the day. And uh, we, we actually had him for lunch. A little barbecue and picnic on you the had beach. Him for lunch. He joined us. You rewarded your friend we, we, by eating. We ate, we ate, no, 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 no. Sorry, he joined us for lunch. Was, joined, oh, right. When I say we had him for lunch, we didn't eat him. Okay. Uh, but there we go. So it was my swimming buddy for the day. Um, and finally, there's an olive tree, and this was to show resilience. Now, I don't know if you can make out, this olive tree has been split in two by someone shoving a fridge into the fork of the tree. And presumably at one stage or another, someone had taken their fridge whilst picking olives, a little sort of portable fridge, put it in there with some beers or something, and then just left it there, and years on. The olive tree is the trunk is split into two. There's this fridge in the middle, and I thought, if you were to look at resilience, well, that, that must be resilience, mustn't it? Keep, keeping on with someone shoved a, a fridge in your stomach. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I've, I've, there may be a metaphor there somewhere. Look, nice. Look good. Work on it. But, but basically, here, Chris is, is your CPD certificate. Anyone who's put up with us for, for, for the last hour uh, of resilience and thank you very much for teaching us on that thank, thank you very much indeed Chris it's been amazing having you here and I suppose all it leaves for us to say is that uh, actually I'm going to I'm going to change this around let's let's look at it from a different perspective don't tell your friends about veterinary ramblings oh. don't click like and share Mike what are you Why? doing don't send us ideas for people you'd like us to talk to and what you'd like us to talk about. You keep it to yourself. It's our secret. Absolutely. Don't let anyone else in there. Yeah, don't let anybody else in there. Only us. Only, Only us. us. Absolutely. The first rule of battery ramblings is you don't talk about it. Yeah. First well, rule. <laughs> I like that. I like that. <laughs> Chris Wilson, thank you very, very much indeed for sharing an insight into your life. Thank you. May so your dog go having. with you. Thank you. May your dog go with you. We're privileged to uh, privileged with magic, Chris. Thank you. Absolutely brilliant. Thank you, Chris.